Let's start this off with a question. Can you prove a murder without a body? Yes. You have to think about it first. I thought about it. If there's a murder weapon with blood in it and a person is missing and that same exact person has the same DNA on the murder weapon. But just because there's a weapon that has blood on it doesn't mean there's someone who died. But missing. Maybe that would be one of the evidence and yeah, you can prove other things. If you can't find a body, you should find other clues that can prove the murder. That's a pretty good answer. <laughs> We've all probably heard of the phrase, no body equals to no murder, at least once in our lifetime. And the phrase is actually often associated with the legal concept of corpus delicti, which refers to the body of evidence that proves a crime has been committed, and it's essentially the requirement of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So can you really get away with murder even when all of the circumstantial evidence leads to you, but there are no bodies to be found? For centuries in England, there was a mistaken view that without a body, there could be no trial for a murder. This misconception arose after the case of Campton Wonder. The case went a little like this. A local man had vanished, and after an investigation, three individuals were hanged for his murder. Two years later, the supposed victim appeared alive and well and went on to telling stories on how he's been abducted and enslaved in Turkey. This mistaken view of no body equals to no murder continued up until the 20th century, in the case of Mammy Stewart, who disappeared in late 1919, but her husband was not charged despite significant circumstantial evidence because her body was nowhere to be found. But this very belief that no body can equal to no murder was what drove a local Englishman to commit his violent murders. This case is one of the most bizarre and disturbing case of mass murder because this serial killer had a really weird MO, which involved consuming his victim's blood before dissolving them in acid. Today, we'll be talking about the case of John George Haig, or the Acid Bath Killer. John George Haig was born on 24th of July 1909 in Stamford, Lincolnshire. His family then moved to Outwood, where he spent the next 24 years of his life there. He was brought up in a fanatically religious household where references to the Lord were used frequently to remind him that he was always observed by a higher and disapproving deity. Later in his life, he claimed that his childhood was bleak and lonely, and his only friends were his few pets and the neighbor's dogs. His dad would put up a tall fence around the house to keep out prying eyes and any social contact with the outside world. So his parents belonged to a religious sect known as the Plymouth Brethren. Bible stories were the only form of entertainment in his childhood, even participating in sports of any kind was forbidden. According to his dad, the world was evil and the family needed to keep themselves separate. His dad would often tell him that if he does anything sinful, he would develop blue marks on his forehead. And those blue marks were essentially marks of the devil. He was also told that his mother had no marks because she was an angel. Are those blue marks just beatings? That is the first thing I thought. I thought that the blue marks was another way to say that he's beaten up as a child, right? But it turns out it's just like a cautionary telltale that his dad would tell him. Like, you know when your mom tells you that you can't cut your nails at oh, night okay. because it's bad luck. So, does that mean the Smurfs are devils? Mm. Well, at least you made yourself chuckle. 
was that joke? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. So when he realized that the blue marks didn't appear even when he was engaging in questionable behaviors, he thought he was invincible. Later in his life, he said that this was what shifted his mindset significantly. When he realized that he could lie or do anything quote-unquote sinful without having any visible consequences. He then was later known to be manipulative and a compulsive liar. In 1934, John stopped attending his parents' church and married Beatrice Hammer, a 21-year-old woman he barely even knew. Despite having been impressed with John's manners and charms, this marriage only lasted about four months, ending when John was arrested in October 1934 and was sent to prison for fraud. While he was in prison, Beatrice actually gave birth to a baby daughter whom she gave up for adoption. Later after this, John actually saw her once more, only to tell her that they were never officially married because he already had a wife at that time. I don't know why he did this. I don't know why he lied about this. It's such a like weird lie. Yeah, and there's what do you gain from it? I don't know. Like to hurt her? Yeah. Maybe. So, despite his abilities, his involvement in illegal enterprises resulted in a significant amount of time spent in prison for things like fraud and any other things related to that. While he was serving his time in prison, he worked briefly at an amusement park owned by William MacDonald McSwan and his parents, Donald and Amy McSwan. The McSwan family took a liking to John and promoted him in the business. They were also reluctant to see him leave when he decided to pursue other opportunities. And by opportunities, he meant even more scams. Because his next project involved setting up a fake solicitor's office, which ultimately earned him four years in prison. It was while at this time when he was in prison that he thought of a new scheme to become rich quickly instead of toiling for a living. His plan was simply to go after rich, older women and would murder them for their money. And he also convinced himself that if there were no corpse, then there would be no conviction. So this is just a matter of how well he could hide their bodies for him. And after striking upon that idea, he started experimenting in prison. So he would buy sulfuric acid in the prison's tin shop, where he then experimented on mice and made studies on the effects of acid on animals' tissues. He saw that the acid can dissolve the animal's body completely, liquefying even the bones and teeth. And so as soon as he was released from prison, he set out to carry his heinous plan. Shortly after his release, he rented a basement space at 79 Gloucester Road, where he set up his quote-unquote workshop. This so-called workshop is set to be the place where he dissolved all of his victims in acid. At a public house in Kensington, John chanced upon former employer Mac McSwan again. Mac was happy to see him and took John to see his parents. During the friendly reunion, they told John of their recent investments in property, but what they didn't know is that this information was what would seal their fates, because after socializing with Mac for a couple of weeks, John carried out his plan on 9th September 1944. In his diary, he claimed that he had a sudden need for blood, so he hit Buxwan over the head with a blunt instrument, then he slit his throat, and he said, I got a mug and took some blood from his neck and drank it. Uh, it's a vampire. Oh, that's actually what they call him. 
He was called the vampire murderer. I thought he was an acid. Yeah, he had a lot of names,、oh. but that was one of the names.、Uh-huh. But I thought you had some comments regarding him writing this down in his diary.、Oh. Yeah, it's okay. People can have diaries. They reflect on their life and what they achieve <laughs> on. <laughs> you think that's an achievement? <laughs> no, but that is literally how to get caught in a murder one o one. Why would he write in a diary? Like and in details too. It's so ridiculous. John then later found a forty-gallon barrel in which he put McSwan's body in, and then he filled it with sulfuric acid. He described in his confession how, when the body was finally submerged in liquid acid, the fumes overwhelmed him and he had to go outside. Later, he covered the drum and went home to sleep, leaving his former employer and friend to dissolve into a liquid sludge. The next day, the remains of McSwan were not more than cold liquid and lumps, which John disposed of down the drain. Knowing that he had killed someone and removed all traces of them gave him a feeling of euphoria. He managed to convince McSwan's parents that their son had gone away to avoid conscription. He even sent fake postcards to them from Scotland, pretending to be their son. However, John's main concern was to acquire the rest of McSwan's assets. The next murder would be committed with the addition of new equipment to deal with dissolving bodies: a stirrup pump, DIY tin face mask, and even a bathtub made of steel, painted to make it more resistant to corrosion. All of these equipment were employed by John in his obscene workshop of death. According to the police statement, John executed his plan to dispose of the McSwan family on July 2, 1945, and they were all killed in a similar manner to their son. John struck them first, claimed to have drunk their blood, and then dissolved their remains in acid baths. To cover his tracks, John informed the McSwan's landlady that they had gone to America. Forwarding all of their email to his address, including Mr. McSwan's pension, John then forged their son's signature on a power of attorney form to access their finances. He even went as far as to forge a property deed owned by Mrs. McSwan, selling it under a fake name and making nearly two thousand pounds, which is equivalent to approximately a hundred and forty-four thousand pounds. John's fraudulent activities, combined with securities and the sale of McSwan's possession, netted him a total of six thousand pounds, equivalent to more than four hundred thousand pounds today. For a while, John managed to swindle people through a variety of scams, including posing as a liaison officer, dealing with patents, and setting up fake branches in several towns. It was also around this time where he later claimed to the police in a confession that he had killed and disposed of a young man called Max from Kensington. So his spoils from McSwans were running out fast at this point, and this evil sociopath needed more money from new victims. This time, he chose a more worldly couple, Doctor Archibald Henderson and his wife Rose, who were selling their home at the time. John built a relationship with a music-loving couple to gain information about their properties before renting a storehouse in London to set up his next workshop. This time, he ordered three large carboys of sulfuric acid and two forty-gallon drums without tops for his operations. On February twelfth, nineteen forty-six, John murdered Doctor and Mrs. Henderson, dissolving their bodies in acid, except for Mr. Henderson's foot. 
John attempted to cover up the murders by forging letters and selling the victim's possession. He showed no remorse, even giving his girlfriend at the time called Barbara, who was 20 years younger than him, by the way, Mrs. Henderson's clothes to wear. Rose Henderson had a brother named Berlin, who was considering to go to the police, but to John's surprise, he managed to persuade Berlin that the couple had moved to South Africa because Dr. Henderson had performed an illegal abortion. After the murder of the Hendersons, he actually attempted to swindle more people, like a grieving mother or a wealthy elderly woman named Mrs. Olive Duran Deacon. Although in June 1948, he reported his car stolen and an unidentified body was later discovered nearby. Despite denying involvement, John was arrested and charged. John's girlfriend, Barbara, became suspicious after he told her about collecting car insurance and took her to the spot where he had ridden off the car. Meanwhile, John's finances were running out and he needed money to pay off loans. At this time, John was also facing problems from Rose Henderson's brother, who wanted to go to the police to find his sister due to a death in the family. John realized that he had to silence him, but before carrying out his intention, he was arrested and confessed to his crimes upon reaching Lewis prison. Besides his parents, the one person who was profoundly affected by the news of John being a callous mass murderer was Barbara Stevens, the woman he was supposed to love and marry. She visited him regularly in prison, trying to understand what kind of man she had been involved with. There appeared to be no remorse on John's part, and he reveled in revealing his grisly escapades, which were recounted in newspapers. Even though the acid had destroyed a great deal of evidence, not everything had been eliminated. There are actually many little relics, such as small bones, dentures, Mr. Henderson's foot, and a gallbladder and they were all discovered as the forensic team sifted through tons of mud and sludge. Technicians had to wear rubber gloves and cover their arms in Vaseline to protect themselves from the acid. They found the following items. 28 pounds of human fat, three faceted gallstones, part of the left foot, not quite eroded, 18 fragments of human bone, upper and lower dentures intact, the handle of a red plastic bag, and a lipstick container. Despite the forensic evidence, it was John's very sense of invincibility and arrogance that was to be his greatest undoing in finding him guilty. He believed that without physical evidence, there could be no crime or punishment. He recounted his gruesome action with confidence, believing that nothing could be done, even when evidence were found at his human slaughterhouse. On April 1st, 1949, E.G. Robbie opened the case for the prosecution before 10 Sussex magistrates. In an early confession, John had not only admitted to many of the deaths, but also had inquired as to what the outcomes would be with anyone who was declared insane. It seemed like at this stage, John had been mulling over the possibility of appearing mad or crazy in order to escape the news and had most likely invented the stories of nightmares and claiming to be a vampire in order to literally save his neck. During court proceeding, E.G. Robbie called 33 witnesses to prove premeditation murder for gain. He laid out this case in the form of a basic chronology that showed how rational John's movements were and had not been the actions of someone with diminished responsibility. John was also examined by several doctors and psychologists who were interested in the defendant's claim to have a need to drink blood, 
Such a compulsion, if genuine, is a part of a sexual deviation and related to the act of violence itself. However, John, who it appeared, had little interest in sex, and he gave no indication that he suffered from such disorder. Most of the psychologists agree that although John suffered from a mental health issue, he was not insane. He was perfectly aware of his murderous action that involved meticulous planning. One eminent psychiatrist believed without any doubt that John had a paranoid constitution, the same mental disease as Hitler. On July 18, 1949, John pleaded not guilty. The prosecution rested its case of deliberate, premeditated murder for gain. John's defense counsel, however, tried to rely on the issue of the defendant's insanity, describing for the court how his mental illness would have affected his ability to appreciate the morality of his acts. It was clear that John was aware that what he was doing was wrong in the eyes of the law, as evidenced by his attempts to cover up his crimes. With that admission, the defense collapsed. The prosecution declared he was simply a man who believed he had discovered the perfect crime, committed murder for gain, and then pretended he was insane when he was caught. The jury were left to decide whether the paranoia could be considered a mental disease or a defect. It took them only 15 minutes to come to a conclusion, and John was found guilty. He was sentenced to be hung until dead. John finished his life story for the newspaper that had paid for his trial. He also wrote letters to Barbara and to his parents who did not see him before he died. Um, his mother sent greetings through a reporter, and John also told Barbara that he believed in reincarnation and that he would be back to complete his mission. So, I just want to go back to his childhood. I think that's where it all started when his dad said if he did sin, he would turn blue. Yeah. yeah. But you know what? I we were all told lies when we were kids, like don't cut your nails at night because you know. Okay. Okay. By luck, or okay. don't whistle at night. Okay, the ghosts okay. are gonna come. What will that lie do to us? Literally nothing. There are no consequences. But if we were told, oh, if you lie, you be blue, and then if we do lie, we don't get blue. We feel like, especially when when, when we're kids. I have a power. His fake omnipotence is from a lie. I see the point you're making. But again, even if that's like a lie that you believe in your childhood, as you grow up, things should be different. Like your standards of morality and oh yeah, there are laws regarding this. And there are like general moral um, obligations, yeah. right? But what do you guys think about this case? You can tell us the opinions that you have via review section on the Apple Podcast, or you can DM us at MindBogglersTCS on Instagram. But that is it for today's case. We'll see you in the next one. Bye! Bye.